think when I pray sometimes instead of being honest, I'm praying what I think God wants me to hear. Instead of just saying, gee, you know who I am. Lord, you know that I've got these cruddy thoughts and I'm a cruddy person. And just between you and me, I could sure stand to feel and to taste the forgiveness like I tasted it a long time ago. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another edition of Songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster, the podcast where we look at music from the decades that's either been forgotten or wasn't given adequate attention in the first place. My guest on this episode is a fellow by the name of Chris Hauser, whom has been in and around Christian music radio since the tail end of the 1970s. In 1987, Hauser got a gig as a radio promoter and in time ended up helping such artists as Philip Bailey, The Choir, Waterdeep, Chris Tomlin, One Bad Pig, and Julie Miller, to name a few. But today, Chris is going to talk about three specific artists in the 80s that he had a hand in. Amy Grant, Steve Taylor, and the subject of our first conversation, Rust Half. He was with the Imperials in the late 70s, into about 1981. Well, for folks who aren't familiar with the Imperials, explain who they are and their significance. Yeah, the the Imperials were basically a Southern Gospel vocal group. They backed up Elvis Presley in the 70s. Ever since time, nothing's ever been found stronger than love. As the industry began not maturing, but but getting younger, mm-hmm. and they could see that there was a lot of energy happening around the youth movement. I believe that there were people in the system at their label, and Rust Half is a rock singer. He could be, you know? Yeah. And so they began to hip the Imperials up a bit, and so they began to bring in other producers, Chris Christian, Michael Omardian, began to make records for the Imperials that were not Southern Gospel. Mm-hmm. They were not inspirational or soft they were more contemporary and so you know russ as a star in that system flourished with the imperials in the late 70s the last record he did with them was called priority kind of a gold goldish cover the four of them on the cover Then he broke away, and his first solo record was 1983, called Walls of Glass. Walls of Glass, I was in radio in Syracuse, New York then. Walls of Glass had We Will Stand. That was the big song that that was probably Song of the Year, probably won Dove Awards. Then he did Metals in 1985. Jack Joseph Puig, who produced his first record, and Jack Joseph Puig, P-U-I-G, maybe a Nashville guy, but eventually an L.A. guy, Jack Joseph Puig co-produced the two... Jellyfish Records with Albie Gluten. Oh, 
Albie Galutin <laughs> did the Bee Gees records in the 70s. Did all the big Bee Gees yeah. hits. But metals, Russ was a bona fide star by, you know, at that point. So Not Gonna Bow to Your Idols, Silent Love. I mean, just big rah-rah records right. for Russ during that time period. Now, his self-title record, the one you worked on, that was kind of a pulled it back and it has this reverence and uh, almost like a U2 feel at times. Uh-huh. Yes. I've been out in a cave for 40 days with only a spark to light my way. I want to give out. you know why he chose that direction? Yes. He was coming to grips with his childhood. His childhood was, he was, uh, his dad was a pastor. His dad was also an alcoholic. And his dad would go into a small town, become a pastor of a church. And after two years, they would figure out his problems and they'd fire him and they would have to move on to another town. And so Russ had this entire childhood growing up of all the secrets of the family and then becoming friends with new kids in new towns and then being ridden out of town on a rail. And so the the Rust Half Rust Half record with the black and white cover, him on the beach, mm-hmm. the rock cliff uh, formation in the background was him really coming to grips in a, in a new chapter in his life reflecting on what he was what he'd struggled with as a kid. And I would say that's something to be able to embrace all those demons because that wasn't a thing at the time. Maybe it was starting to become that, but you know, Christians are supposed to be happy uh-huh. and uh, yeah. give all their problems to God, so to speak, and, and yeah, not yeah. look back. But Down in the Lowlands was a song on there. Great song. Charlie yeah. Peacock cover. And I'm down in the lowlands with a water is deep. If I cry, if I shout, save me, save me. I still believe by uh, the call. And really interestingly, I mean, the lead-up, Russ Taft could do no wrong in 85 and 86. He was the star in the Christian music industry. Amy Grant on the female side, but Russ does this record, and he's actually in a healthy spot. He'd actually not been in a healthy spot for years before, but the music machine, the Christian music machine, put him in that position. I see. And he was playing a part, really, in the mid-80s. I guess you saw that a lot, probably. Mm -hmm. Still do. So in 87, they take a long time to get this record ready because it's got to be right. And the entire company was bearing weight down on the LA office. We've got to get this done. In fact, when I went out for the job interview, I was in Christian radio from 1979 to 1987 in Syracuse, New York. So when I went out to LA to interview my friend who went on to do A&R for them, he was like a former radio promotion guy for the label. I said to him the night before my interview, I was like, is there something I could say to the people who are interviewing me? And he kind of looked up and he looked down. He said, tell them you're really excited about the next Russ Taff record. That will absolutely get their attention. I was like, well, I am. So that's good to know. And so when I went in there, you know, it probably was not the first thing out of my mouth, but it was probably the third thing out of my mouth. And it was, man... Russ Taff has been so huge for me in my at my radio station. I'm so excited about what you guys are doing. And that might have sealed the deal for me. I'm not sure. Was there a fear from the record company side that because his self-titled record is so different from Metal's, 
Like it was not going to be accepted? It was not accepted. None of us had that fear going into it. Not that I, and I, I was kind of late into the party. Mm -hmm. They'd been working on this record for easily a year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. So when I come in in the fall of 87, we are about ready to release a single. So the first single was Walk Between the Lines. Walk Between the Lines was this massive hit. So it was a number one hit at Christian AC Radio. And that was about following the Bible. It had a, a great sound, but it was not too far off. It debuted at the CHR chart, Christian CHR chart, at number one. It stayed at number one for 12 weeks, and then it fell off the chart. So the only number that Walk Between the Lines ever knew, as far as a chart number goes, was number one. I've never ever seen anything like it in my life. Like everybody came on board at one time, everybody got off of it at one time as well. So they received that one song. They received good. the first song well. Okay. And then it just started to go a little bit left. We released, I think, Do You Believe in Love? Chris Eaton song that was on Chris Eaton's solo record that was on Reunion in 85. Chris Eaton's gone on to write massive hits and background singer with all kinds of people. When people started saying to me, radio people started saying to me, we feel like the sax solo is a little too passionate for us. <laughs> and we were like, oh crap. Oh no. And it started looking a little weird. It started... Like, what? You're not all just falling uh, into line with this? Yeah, especially in the 80s. I mean, a sax solo, especially by a guy with long hair and no shirt. And that was where it was at. <laughs> right. And so we started getting some pushback wow. on Russ Taff in starting in early 88. I guess I can see it at that time when everything was so poppy. But again, I think it's such a reverent record. It's, it's more respectful. Yes. And, and not that his other stuff wasn't, but... It was a little bit too raw and too intense for a lot of people. And they said that to you? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And again, Christian Radio, mm -hmm. they, they didn't have this phrase in the 80s, mm -hmm. but there are two big phrases that they use, which are basically marketing. It's not really true, but they say safe for the whole family mm -hmm. or positive and encouraging. Right. And so it's like, we want you to tune in. And you know that there will be nothing your little kids in the back seat will hear that will embarrass you or be weird for the family. So we're safe for the whole family. Right. I always say, yeah, but what about like the non-believing, cynical husband who's sitting in the passenger side? How safe is it for him? Like, yeah. you know. Yeah, so. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of the foundations there of people going like, ah, this doesn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. The song was about Chris Eaton going through a divorce. And Michael English ended up covering it for one of his records at Warner Alliance in the early 90s. But that is where things started to unravel a little bit. But I can tell you this, man. Russ Taff, live in the late 80s, there was nothing better than him on stage with his band mm -hmm. that was so in the pocket. James Hollihan, Jackie Street... Sometimes yeah. Tori, his wife, would sing. It was a stunning live performance and so passionate. And Russ would leave everything on, on the stage. There was nothing left of him after a, a show. 
there's often a gulf between obviously folks in the industry and the fans. Mm-hmm. Do the fans understand his record? I think it probably didn't sell what metal sold, and you know the consumer is king. Sure, I mean the consumer decides, right? And people vote with their wallets, and so I think the vote was off for that record. It's like uh, CCM Magazine did this book, the hundred top albums of all time in Christian music. Mm-hmm. I think that might be in the top twenty. Maybe really? top 15. Uh, the Way Home is in there as well. The next record that Russ did in 89. It's a critical darling. But when it got down to the consumer level, I think it was a stumble a little bit. Did Russ expect that, do you think? Or was he kind of down in the dumps about it? I'm not sure what his expectations were. But I think everybody had high hopes for crossover. Mm. You know, They had high hopes for this to be a huge record in the Christian market. And just like Unguarded with Amy Grant in 85, that it would cross over, that there would be songs. Uh, and again, his live performances were a second to none. And so Word had a distribution and partnership deal with A&M Records. So the A&M people, they were at those showcases. You know, they got it? They got it, but not to the point where they were like, oh, let's go put a million dollars behind uh. this and bring this to the market. And so there was a lot of disappointment uh, in the system. For all of us. It just belongs among the great records of the 80s, regardless of it's secular or Christian. I would agree with you. I would say this, though, mm-hmm. that to me, as I've listened to it in the last year, mm-hmm. Russ's performance is amazing, mm-hmm. but the production feels a little bit thin, and it's dated. Right. It's like, you know, the electronic drums, drums yeah. or the, lots of synthesizer pads, yeah, and stuff the, like that. The enormous reverb. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You move on to The Way Home mm-hmm. in 1989 which was an Americana record before the word was even invented. I mean, The Way Home still sounds great 20 years later. I got together with my boss, for the first three months, she was very spiritual. She was the one who helped get me hired. Uh, her name was Lori, and we would pray every morning in her office, and we would pray for Rust Half. Oh, wow. We'd pray that his marriage would work. It did, and it has. Uh, this was long before he had kids, because we knew that there was enormous pressure on him, and that he was really working out the demons of his childhood. And uh, Do you... You ever talk to him? I do. How's he doing? He's doing great. In fact, there's a, a friend of mine who's putting together a documentary. Russ has been through AA, and he's had a really, really colorful life. But he's one of the great talents that I've ever worked with in 30-plus years of promotion. And such a, a gentle heart. I just adore the guy. Start to Okay, so next up, Amy Grant's record, Lead Me On. Now, again, to the uninitiated, give a brief bio of Amy Grant. Oh my gosh. I mean, signed as a 16-year-old in 1975-76, Murr Records by Chris Christian. Are you puzzled by the way that you're behaving? Do you wonder why you do the things you do? 
came up through Belmont Church, which was a uh, non-instrumental Church of Christ, historic church on Music Row. Still there, still thriving. She brought a guitar to like a youth group meeting once and scandalized people. And that's what the song 1974 is about. It's not about the scandal, but it's about the revival that was happening in the youth group in 1974 when she was 14 years old. We were young and none of us knew quite what to say But the feeling moved among us Signed, started making records. She started cranking out like a record a year, I think. Age to Age, you know, was the record that that really blew it up for her in early '82. And then straight ahead. was unguarded and so she broke through to mainstream yeah. love will find a way so I was in radio and playing all of her records had a huge crush on her who, who did? would not have a crush on Amy Grant <laughs> yeah. in the late 70s yeah. especially with that leopard uh Oh yeah, Leopard Print, 85, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unguarded had four different collectible covers you could get. I didn't know Which that. is radical. Probably one of the few times it's ever happened in the Christian market. And again, this came through the uh, relationship with A&M Records, too. So A&M took her to mainstream radio. They could see the possibility of that. Well, let's take a side trip for a second. Uh-huh. I remember in the 80s, for there was some reason there was this blackout. They couldn't acknowledge that a Christian industry existed. I always give this as an example of how people were kind of shocked that they were selling as many records as they were as when they went to SoundScan. Yes. And before, if people don't know this, they were writing stuff down on a pad of paper in the record stores about what they were selling. And so it was kind of up to the, the employee to write down what they were going to write down. And so they only wrote down stuff that they thought was important. So they didn't write down jazz. They didn't write down country. They didn't write down Christian particularly. Yes. But I think that the week that they put SoundScan in, I think number one, number two was Amy Grant and Garth Brooks. And yeah, that's right. Like, like what? And, yeah, and Garth Brooks. I, I mean, in a sense, put country music on the map in, yeah. in a way right. because he knocked out Michael Jackson yeah. from number one that week at SoundScan. So this is before SoundScan, of course. Yes. Uh, how did A and M feel that they could, you know, again make their money back, but with a, a so-called Christian record that might be toxic? to some people or there might be prejudiced. Do you know how that worked? Or I, I'm not entirely sure, but I know that they saw the strength of concert tickets. They saw the strength of the sales and they saw the strength of Amy Grant selling 20,000 tickets. Okay. And so they're like, we want to go be a part of that. I know that, uh, I'm nervous about saying it out loud, but like there were cool artists in our industry in the word system that were trying to make their way through to AM. And AM was like, man, we think we're gonna do something with Petra. Well, not because Petra was cool, but because Petra was big. Because Petra had the numbers. And so the people in that mindset in the mainstream were like, let's pour fuel on that. Let's not necessarily it's take a chance, right. take such a risk. So it's practical. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very much so. Okay, cool. And so Amy Grant, they could just see 20,000 tickets a night or more. And how she had grown her brand so big and there was so much happening around her. And so 
1983, my radio station won a contest in Syracuse around the Angels single from Straight Ahead. Angels watching Winner at my radio station, a listener, a guest, and the program director of the radio station flew to Los Angeles, California, the city of angels, uh. to see Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith in concert. <laughs> and so we were in the front row at the Universal Amphitheater. This is April of 83. And there's somebody next to me people are coming up and getting autographs from. My wife and I had just gotten married. We were a bit separatist. We didn't have a TV. I was just completely taken up in church work and everything and Christian music. And I pulled one of these kids down. I said, who's sitting next to me? This is before the show started. And the girl goes, it's Michael Knight of Knight Rider. David Hasselhoff (laughs) had gotten married that day on a Friday in April of 83. And his wife is a huge Amy Grant fan. And she says, I'll marry you that day, but we're going to see Amy Grant that night. And then we'll go on our honeymoon. Don't hassle the Hoff. I kind of like that. Wow. And so I don't even know who David Hasselhoff is. <laughs> I don't know who Michael Knight and Knight Rider is. Wow. I find out quickly. I thought I lived in the cave. <laughs> <laughs> and so I came home from that trip and I looked at Linda, my wife, and I said, we're going to end up in L.A. And she was like, what? I said, I just have this sense. So this was spring of 83, and by the fall of 87, I got hired at Murr Records in L.A. And so in January of 88, I get a cassette copy. I think it's here on my shelf, an early Amy Grant Lead Me On cassette of demos that they gave me to listen to overnight. Okay, Hauser, I'm the new radio promotion guy. We need you to listen to this record and tell us what the first single is going to be. And all the bigwigs from Word in Dallas are flown in overnight and we're going to all meet in a room the next morning and we're going to figure out what the first single is. I sat in that room and I was too young to understand the politics of the room yet. Mm -hmm. Like it took me another six months to figure out the politics of any room. So I'm literally 27 years old. I'm in this company about two months. And I'm sitting with legends of the record industry, the Christian music industry, and they say, Hauser, what's going to be the first single? And I went, Saved by Love. And they went, Wrong! This is Amy Grant. She can do whatever she wants, and radio will lap it up. And I'm fresh out of Christian radio. And I said, guys, here's where I'm at. Again, I don't understand the politics of the room. <laughs> you don't know your place. I don't know my place yet. <laughs> right. I'm too dumb. And I say, she did this interview in Rolling Stone. It really weirded some people out. She's had a song at pop radio. I said, look, she mentions Jesus in the song Saved by Love. It's about her family. It's about being saved. I, I said, I would just love to have a song that just states who Amy Grant is. That's what I want. That's where my conviction is. And so they all fell in line. They were like, okay, we'll do it. And Saved by Love was like song of the year and it set her up so that people, like the Christian radio people were like, ah, she's back. She's with us. She's singing about stuff that matters to us.
huge campaign with, where we put gold discs actually out into the marketplace, gold CDs autographed by Amy. Like, I think we put 2,000 out in the market. So someone might accidentally buy one with a disc? Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and people were out buying these discs because they were just randomly in CD boxes all over the country. So I, I have on my plaque over there, uh -huh. I had it doctored so that I could put an okay. autographed gold disc on there. And so then Lead Me On, we released Lead Me On, and, and people okay? were then, they were ready for it. Okay. They were totally cool about it. But Lead Me On is a artsy, it's about the Holocaust uh -huh. and uh, the Jews in uh, captivity in the Old Testament. It's a darker kind of song, but people were in by then. And That's so great. then we released Lead Me On, that went number one. And then we released 1974, about the revival that happened in the youth group at Belmont Church. That went number one. And then we even released What About the Love, which was a Janice Ian song. And nobody in the Christian market world knew that Janice Ian was a lesbian. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But this was this amazing song. And then, you know, Amy Grant covered a Jimmy Webb song, If These Walls Could Speak. Mm -hmm. CCM Magazine called it, in their book of the 100 greatest albums of all time, Lead Me On is chosen as the number one album of all time. So she had a better experience than Rust Half did, <laughs> it sounds like. Yes, she okay. Did. okay. Well, then that's good, though, because it gives you a little bit of hope that... Yes. ...that it can be done. Yes. Or maybe they were ready for it, because it was a few years later, Yes. Right? Uh, it was well, the same time period. I mean, Russ came out in fall of 87. She came out in 88, in the spring of 88. Well, that makes no sense. Uh, I'm not asking for any of this to make sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it, it's also about who they were mm -hmm. at the time, who they were as artists. Lead Me On shipped gold. I mean, that was the first record in Christian music history to ship 500,000 units. That's how much interest there was for her. And the Rustaff record, that's not gold. I don't know that he's had a gold record. Metals would probably be the one that would be closest. But she was the biggest artist, period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, uh, Dude, in the early 90s, yeah. after Heart and Motion mm -hmm. and Baby Baby, she was one of the top three most recognized females in the world. Like Mother Teresa uh. and Amy Grant and Oprah, for a time, she was just ubiquitous, maybe yeah. is the word. I mean, she was just everywhere. And to maybe a non-Christian, that, that makes no sense. But I, having lived in other parts of the world, that does make a total a lot of sense. Because a good part of the world is are Christian and persecuted. And so they grasp on these crumbs or they, they grasp on these artists that inspire them or, or uh, you know, give them encouragement. And that's a very encouraging record, if I ever heard it. Yes. It might be in my top 10 of all time. I mean, it's so earthy and cool. I would actually say that there are some people who have the opinion that it really is a Gary Chapman record with her singing lead vocal. Okay, so back in college, I parked cars at Green Hills Grill was one of the places I worked at. And a couple times, Amy Grant would come and uh -huh. Gary to you know to eat. And I'd park their car. They're very nice people. And 
I never talked to the talent. We were supposed to leave them alone. But they were there late one night, and I had to go home, and I had to go give the keys to the folks that were still in the uh-huh. restaurant. And I went in and gave it to Amy and Gary, and uh, I said, uh, here's your keys. By the way, I said, I don't want to bug you, but Lead Me On is my favorite record that you've ever done. And Gary said, mine too. <laughs> 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 they're very sweet, and then I left. Uh, yeah, got out of there. <laughs> and there were powerful things going on in their lives mm-hmm. at the time. He'd had a cocaine yeah. habit that came to light. They'd had some spiritual breakthrough with the Kansas City prophets mm-hmm. that were tied into the vineyard movement, uh, and they were just in a really beautiful, fresh new place. Now that I'm older, I sit at home a lot with the kid we got. had a much larger system around her and I was the peon radio promotion person way down at the bottom there were a hundred people between me and Amy as far as me being around her or it could very well be that she could have gone for months like never giving me a thought or never giving like oh I hope my song goes number one right like there are artists who are like bugging me all the time wow. hey How's my song doing? Right. I, I'm not sure that she was necessarily that kind of a person. She's an incredibly classy person. Yeah. And it's said about her that when she is in front of you, everything else goes away. Like, she is so direct and and uh, present. And I can attest to that. Again, back at the yeah. Green Hills Grill, uh, she came with a friend, and there was a big, long line. And so... She asked me, what should they do? Should they wait, go on? I said, you can sit on the parking lot and talk to your friend, I guess. I didn't know what to say because I'm like, this is Amy Grant. And they actually <laughs> sat on the, the curb. It wasn't even a sidewalk. And her friend, I think, was going through something. And Amy, I, I think, yeah. heard every word. I mean, you could tell that they were in their own world. And, yeah. And I'm running past them, I'm, you know, jumping over them, you know, the bushes and stuff to get, get cars parked. But she's very important to me. Yeah. She's very special to me. And... She and her manager, they just mean an awful lot to me. And, and again, that I got to work a record with four number one songs that personally had such a huge impact on my life. And uh, I'm very thankful for her. And last but not least, Steve Taylor. Taylor is a former youth pastor. His dad was a Baptist minister in Denver. Steve was the youth pastor for a time. Got his youth group kicked out of the Denver airport for playing Capture the Flag back in the 70s. <laughs> and he's very short, and don't mention that to him. <laughs> he gets really upset. He's ridiculously tall. Yeah. <laughs> he is by far the most creative, kindest, futuristic, ahead of his time artist that I have ever worked with. Uh, He's everything wrapped up into one. Other than being, you know, fabulously good looking, I suppose. I don't know. But (laughs) he'd be the first to to say that, I suppose. But And he's produced amazing records for Sixpence. In 1983, I was his third radio interview ever 
as a radio guy when I Want to Be a Clone came out. You like the big ones, worship incognito, the problems ain't getting solved. You try a small one, whoops, you must be Trito, you'd rather not get involved. Oh, it's a chase. So I got I Want to Be a Clone record on a Saturday at my radio station. It's 17 minutes. Six songs and 17 minutes. It's an EP. And I had all six of those songs memorized by Monday. I was completely floored by Steve Taylor. It was Devo. Uh Yeah. It was alternative. It was quirky. It was... Devo and Weird Al and... (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Some other stuff mixed in there. I kept him on the phone in that interview. He was on the road with Jeremiah People, a Christian comedy group, out of uh, Christian Artist Seminar of Estes Park. He was in a Miami bus station and they were all waiting for him on the bus and I kept him on the phone for an hour and a half digging deep down into his lyrics on this six song EP. That's how quickly I became a Steve Taylor fanatic. Okay, as far as records being kind of hard to play on Christian radio, I gotta say that's, it's funny, but it's very blunt. It's very, a lot of satire. A lot of makes it might make people uncomfortable today. A Christian counselor wrote I played Steve Taylor every Saturday night on my Christian rock show Okay. called Pressing On, named after a Bob Dylan tune from the Saved record. I played Steve Taylor every night from probably 1983 to 1987 when I left the radio station. Uh-huh. I mean, And people were okay with it. People were totally cool okay. with it. Yeah, they, they let me do whatever I wanted on Saturday nights for two hours. That's nice. I didn't meet him for another two years. I met him at a New Sound Festival in Boston in 1985. And he had just got married. He and Deb were there. My wife and I were there. So in 87, he uh, was about to release I Predict 1990. This was the record that made him realize I can't stay in the Christian music industry any longer. And why is that? It was not well received. The record was a struggle. In 1984, with the Meltdown record, he was nominated for Male Vocalist of the Year at the Dove Awards because of the strength of the of the Meltdown record. This wow. is how big he was, how fast it hit for him. Now, we're not talking Amy Grant numbers, mm-hmm. but we're talking Meltdown sold a lot of records. In 85, he released On the Fritz, which was a little a little less commercial than Meltdown was. And uh, by the time I Predict 1990 came along, he'd been released from Sparrow. So he had turned that record in at Sparrow and they were not they were not interested. They, he'd really? continued to get further and further obscure in their minds and less, less of what Meltdown was. Right. I guess with songs like... I Blew Up the Clinic Real Good, yeah, uh, Svengali. Yeah. <laughs> I was on a solid- Much more cerebral, less pop-oriented. Meltdown had big pop sensibilities. Uh So I got to work, I predict, 1990. And and again, I loved C. Taylor from 83 to 87 as a radio guy. Like, I hung on every word he had, every word he said. I, I was all in for it. So then to be able to actually 
be involved with the promotion for his record. So he had a song on I Predict 1990 called Harder to Believe Than Not To. When some get trampled by the pious throne, still they limp along. And it was based on a Flannery O'Connor. Uh, someone had written Flannery O'Connor about how can you be a believer. It might have been printed in the New York Times or something. How can you actually be a Christian? And she wrote back, it's harder not to believe. And so we released that to Christian AC Radio. And we gave away like 20 CD players to people to try to get them to play the song mm -hmm. without calling it payola. Right. <laughs> well, the song charted. <laughs> okay. The song kind of got into the like number 38 on the top 40 chart or something. And uh, we all high-fived on that, that the song, he actually had a song that got played at Christian AC Radio. Mm -hmm. But again, that's a strange song, and it's got a, a small string quartet, and there's no drums to it or anything, yeah. and it's not actually hummable, or you, it's not it's not something you sing along to, you right. know, per se. But I, I was honored, but by 88, we could see what he was doing was just not commercial, not for the Christian market. There were great videos. He did a whole video package where he did probably five or six songs. Dave Perkins, you know, was involved in the production of that record. Dave and Steve and Lynn Nichols, who was his A&R guy at Murr, <laughs> and the A&R guy for the Rust Half, Rust Half record, they went on to form Chagall Guevara. The Chagall record uh, came out on MCA, mm -hmm. which Steve says stands for Musician Cemetery of America. <laughs> he says the record went double for Micah. Uh. <laughs> and eventually Sparrow picked it up uh -huh. in the early 90s, Sparrow Records, and released it in the Christian market. Uh -huh. And it's rumored that Sparrow actually sold more in the Christian market than MCA sold wow. in the mainstream. Yeah, the Chagall record is amazing. And it came out the same month that the uh, Pearl Jam... 10 um, came out it was in that world man Pearl Jam Nirvana mm -hmm. Chagall was all in that same time period but uh, Chagall just got left behind mm -hmm. super sad the thing about Steve Taylor is a lot of his stuff is kind of tongue-in-cheek or it's there's satire there. For example, you mentioned that I blew up the clinic real good. Did anybody misunderstand that song as a, an endorsement of bombing abortion clinics? <laughs> okay. I, I mean, there, there's lots of misunderstanding right. about lots of songs on that record. Right. right down to the, you know, the Venetian, turn-of-the-century Venetian art that's on the cover and it says, I predict, and Steve's got his hand in a certain way. So Tex Mars, who's a like an, uh, an evangelist in Texas, uh, I think, or somewhere, wrote in a book that it was a tarot card, that Steve Taylor was a Satanist. Oh, no. And um, Steve said about Tex Mars, he told me one time, he goes, man, that guy is one burrito short of a combination platter. 
<laughs> like, the, like the two of them talked on the phone or really? something, uh-huh. and Steve was just like, yeah. Well, that I, was a thing back then, because you had the 88 Reasons in 88. Uh-huh. And there was a bunch of people were, were making some kind of similar prediction. You Dude, know? there was so much intense stuff happening in the church in that time period. It was Jim Baker. Mm-hmm. It was Jimmy Swaggart. I mean, it was a fertile time for the church and all the craziness that was going on right. during that time period. I love the record. I was involved in helping Steve come back to Christian music and come back to the Christian music industry with the Squint record at Warner Alliance in 93. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of. And did that do better than... Uh, it did. It probably did. We still spent an enormous amount of money on it. And uh-huh. he did the Squint movies from the soundtrack, the VHS video of videos where they went all around the world mm-hmm. with a camera crew and shot videos. And then the Liver record that came out in 95. Mm-hmm. The record that's liver than any live record you've <laughs> ever heard. Oh, it's not called Liver? <laughs> well, uh, all of the uh, imaging that he had was an actual liver you know, so he would never say the word. Uh, okay. He would never say the word in any interview. No one could ever get him on tape as to actually saying it. Well, that's all for now. We'll try to have Mr. Hauser on again in the future. But in the meantime, you might check out other episodes of Songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster, including number 97, where another guest, John J. Thompson, talks about his memories of Steve Taylor, as well as The Alarm and After the Fire. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease! Peace and chicken grease!